Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I want to jump right into our series. I'm going to try to wrap this thing up today. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do so. We may have to take one more installment. But I want to, I want to take all the strings we've been talking about on this series on prayer and try to bring them together, bring a, an application here this morning. Now, we've been talking about prayer. We've been, pray, we've been talking about it for a number of months. And we were ta- we've been talking about four different theological categories that are essential for us to understand in order to really understand prayer. And we talked first about the biblical cosmology, that God has created a world in which he delegated it to us. God delegated the earth to man. It's Hebrews chapter 2, Psalm chapter 8, and others. And so, uh, the, so the principle of prayer is this, divine intervention only by human invitation. God will not violate the, print, the, the structure, the system in which he set up. And so while we ra- r- you know, wring our hands saying, God, why don't you do something? God looks at us and says, why don't you pray? Prayer is what will shape history. God has put it in our hands to call out to him. And if we don't, history goes in a bad direction. And God, we, will, we are the ones to give account for it. So that's a cosmology. We looked at uh, theology proper or our view of God, uh, the nature of God. And then we looked at the nature of man. And we kind of took a pause on the nature of man and jumped into the last component, the, 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 uh, the nature of man. What I'm talking about is your biblical anthropology, your biblical understanding of man. We need to understand the role God gave us and that he gave us equipment to work in that role. And what I mean by that is this, that God has given you a mind, will, and emotions to leverage in intercession. Your mind, will, and emotions really do matter. Your emotions, the passion with which you engage in prayer really does matter. Scripture says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek for me with your whole heart. Half-hearted, you know, uh, half-hearted pursuit of God will get you nowhere. It's that wholehearted, that wholeheartedness that God is looking for, that he wants you to engage. And then your will is a weapon that God wants to use. Your will is actually leverage in the spiritual realm. Your, the human will is the pry bar by which God moves things in history. And so we want to look at that because it's very important for us to understand. We talk about this biblical cosmology that God has delegated the earth to man. Your will matters. You have been invested with tremendous authority. And what you decide largely will tip the scales of human history. And so prayer is not us just praying our own will selfishly. You know, that's why James says, if, if you're seeking selfishly, don't expect an answer. Prayer is us having our will welded to God's will. And so we're going to look at that whole thing this morning. And I also want to look at uh, a couple of other things. I'm just going to read through some notes. I usually don't preach from notes, but uh, there's just a lot of things I want to cover this morning. So I'm just going to read. And, and Father, I just ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, I ask that you would take my thoughts. Uh, Lord, 
Strain them through words that will inflame the hearts of those who are listening this morning. Lord, ignite a passion for intercession. Lord, I ask that any, uh, Lord, any complacency left within us, God, that you would eradicate it with the fire of your word this morning. And Lord, help us to see that you have set the present hour. You have put the future of our nation in our hands to bring before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just read a few things. Prayer involves your will. It is bringing your will as well as God's to bear upon situations. Many would react to this thought saying that even Jesus prayed, not my will. Not my will, but yours. With this, Jesus was dealing with the internal battle of intercession, bringing oneself to the place of being willing to embrace the price, the cost of intercession, embracing the suffering. However, however, rather than discounting human will, Jesus was highlighting its importance. The reason Jesus said, not my will but thine be done, is because at that moment, his will was a barrier to what God wanted to accomplish. Your will really does matter. That's why you can frame it this way. Anytime you are on a journey of intercession, there are two battles taking place simultaneously. There is the internal battle of your own human surrender, of you adjusting your will and aligning your will and getting yourself aligned with heaven. And then there's the external battle of what you're crying out for, that that, that prayer point, that thing that you're asking God to change. Right now, we're praying for the soul of our nation. We're praying that God would step in and rescue and preserve this great republic. This, This nation has been the hope of the nations. That is why people from other nations are leaving their own to get here. There's, there's immigration has been an issue for us. Immig- we want to have a wide gate and a high wall. We want people to come here legally. We want them to come. We want to make it easy. Part of the problem with our immigration is that we have made it so abundantly hard for certain people to get here. And we want to make it easy for people to be processed. We are a nation of immigrants. My, my family uh, didn't arrive to this nation until the th- 20s, 30s, and 40s. I am an immigrant family. And this nation is the beacon, the hope of the nations. But it's in the balances right now, and we need to be praying for this nation. So there's that battle out there. We're praying, we're crying out, God, change the situation. But simultaneously, as we're attacking the external situation, we are also fighting an internal battle. And winning the internal battle is what's going to swing the balance towards the victory in the external battle. If we lose the internal battle, we lose the external battle of prayer. What I mean by that is this. The real battle is aligning my will with his. Getting my will to the point where I'm saying, God, anything you want. Lord, I will exchange my life for the answer to this prayer. And until I get there, the external battle is is in the balances. And so that's what Jesus was doing. Even Jesus struggled with the will of his father. It wasn't sin for him to struggle with giving up comfort to go to the cross. It was an understandable struggle, but he won the battle in prayer as he sweat great drops of blood. And that doesn't diminish the power or the importance of the human will. It highlights it. 
Jesus understood unless he dealt with that, this external battle would be lost. And so we need to understand the, the human will is a powerful weapon. You have been invested with tremendous authority. Your will will determine history. Your inactivity and your apathy will assure that evil prevails. And your engagement, if you will engage and you can move into this thing with wholeheartedness, if God can get a hold of your will and you fight through to that battle, to you, you can say, God, not my will, but thine will, until you can say, God, our will be done. Because you have become one with him, that's when the battle begins to move. And so we need to understand the power of the human will. So many would react to this, saying, even Jesus prayed, not my will, but thy will. But with this, Jesus was dealing with that internal battle of intercession, fighting through his own lack of surrender, his own, his own desire to hold on to comfort and not to pay the price for the battle. See, the dilemma for the intercessor is that when you're an intercessor, you, you're already right with God. You're already assured of a, a place in heaven. What you're going to do is you're going to trade your temporal comfort to fight a battle that others should be fighting for themselves. They get the, you know, hey, there was a time where I was on the receiving end of that intercession. That somebody else prayed prayers for me when I wasn't praying those prayers. I'll never forget, I was in a, a mall in Ottumwa, Iowa. Years after I'd gotten saved, I was walking around, my babies were little. And uh, we were in this mall, and this woman that I knew came up to me and she said, Dave, I haven't seen you in years. And she began to tell me about a Sunday night. Well, she wept at the altar, because I was a homeless alcoholic at the time. And this woman, she said, God put such a burden on my heart for you. She said, I was at the altar just weeping, asking God to save you. Somebody gave up their comfort, at least momentarily, so that I could enter into salvation. God forbid that I should refuse to do the same now that I've received redemption. God is looking to enlist us. It, there, there's something beyond being a recipient. It's being a partner. It's, it's beyond being a recipient receiving salvation. It's becoming a vehicle of salvation, a partner in the kingdom where we weld our will to his and we begin to cry out until our wills become one and we cry out for the victory. God is looking to enlist us in this. He's looking to engage us with his heart. And there's all kinds of theologies. You know, the Bible talks about the doctrine of demons when it talks about certain theology. There are systems of belief that are based on the Bible, but a misuse of the Bible that are actually doctrines of demons to undermine your passion and your engagement for the things of God. They will actually produce complacency within you. So guard your heart. Make sure that it's not only in the word, but it, that it's contextual. That's really what the Bible is saying. Because there's a whole lot of belief systems out there that were, were formed simply by someone trying to justify their complacency or justify their impotence in prayer or justify the lack of fruit in their life. Whenever you hear somebody writing books about why things don't happen, then rather than how to get them to happen, 
Man, that should put up a big red flag to you and think, I don't know that I want to consume. At least if I read this book, I'm going to read it with scrutiny. I'm going to read it and keep turning it back to the word. Because I don't need anybody to give me more excuses for why things aren't happening in my life. I need people that will provoke me out of my apathy and, and engage my heart to see things happen. And so... When praying with the will engaged, it is not us deciding what will happen and stubbornly camping out until. It is us yielding our will to his, sensing what he wants to do, and then stubbornly siding with him in it. At the front end of that process, it's me siding against myself. Man, I've prayed that plenty of times. You've heard me pray it publicly. Lord, we side against us with you. That's where prayer often begins. The fact that I'm not with him in that thing is part of the problem. That's how we got in this mess. That we were too disengaged previously. So the front end of prayer is repentance and us saying, God, I side against my aversion to sacrifice. And I'm saying, God, do whatever you got to do. Lord, do whatever you have to do to me to get me where I need to go. And when I squeal and cry, uncle, when I squeal and complain, ignore my pleas until you get me to total surrender. The only thing, Lord, ignore me until you hear uncle. <laughs> and then we can get on with the game. But we need God to work in us. So when praying with our will engaged, it is not us deciding what will happen and stubbornly camping out until... That's a hissy fit, okay? That's not prayer. It is us yielding our will to his, sensing what he wants to do, and then stubbornly siding with him in it. Welding our will to his will it first involves surrender of our desires and then an engagement with his until we are willing to exchange our lives for the answer. This stubborn alliance with heaven is essential. It is when we, in brokenness, weld our wills to his and stand. That's what God's looking for in this hour. God is looking, scripture's clear, God is looking to and fro throughout the earth, looking for an intercessor. He's looking for one person that will side with him. And he wants to take that one and multiply them into many and create a tipping point in history where God can in, intervene and do his will. Now, I want to back up a little bit. I want to, I want to deal with something. Uh, we've been talking about this biblical cosmology, if I can find my notes here. Uh, We've been talking about this whole thing of uh, the heavens and, and uh, just understanding the spiritual realm because this really is the context in which our lives take place and in which prayer is executed. And so we need to understand how all of this happens. Uh, scripture is very clear that we are seated in two places at once. We, are, we live down here in the physical realm, but we're also, as believers, seated in heavenly places. What does that mean? And those heavenly places is where the battle is really taking place. There is an unseen realm behind, uh, surrounding us just beyond this, this dimension that many are oblivious to, but they're affected by. And they don't realize how much of a puppet they are because they're being manipulated by a spiritual realm. 
And we need to be awakened to that and, and, and realize what's going on. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Often, even as believers, we can be in an environment and there's things going on in the atmosphere that we take on as an identity and then we start to pray for, for victory rather than from it. We own the garbage in the atmosphere or we own the temptation that is external to us. One of the enemy's great strategies, he has multiple names he's known by in scripture, one of which is the father of lies. He'll camp out on your left shoulder and tell you, you want that. You really want to sin. You want, you want some of that. And then immediately he'll get on the other shoulder and he's the accuser of the brethren. And he'll start saying, some believer you are, some Christian you are, you're still struggling with such basic things. And it wasn't even you struggling. It was external to you. Matter of fact, the fact it shocked you so much when you got those wild thoughts. You ever been there? I remember, how many of you remember Pastor Quimby? Pastor Quimby, he, he resigned a couple years ago, but uh, Quimby's like a spiritual dad to me and a wonderful man of God. One of the most gentle people I've ever met. I've seen huge grown men come at him screaming and cussing at him and he would just get up and with tears running down his eyes he would just as they're coming at him aggressively he'd just wrap his arm around him and hold him he's just this little bitty guy and they hold him and they just break in his arms he's just he breaks people with gentleness just a wonderful man one time he was telling me, he said, you know, sometimes when I'm praying for people at the altar, I'll be praying for a little aged old woman, and all of a sudden a thought will come in my mind, why don't you punch her in the mouth? <laughs> I was like, stunned, Quimby? My first reaction was, I can't believe Quimby said that. My second reaction was, thank God he struggles with those things. You ever had a wild thought come in your mind? You're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, I'm going to pull in front of a semi. I have no desire to pull out in front of a semi, but all of a sudden I get this thought. And I've had all kinds of crazy thoughts that I'm not gonna really freak you out with this morning. You know, you might wanna find another church if I go any further. But the fact is, we, there is a spiritual realm with very real demonic spirits that are continually trying to buffet our minds. And if you don't know who you are, one of the greatest defenses in spiritual warfare is a settled identity. When we know who we are in Christ, when I know the ground I occupy and I know who I am, those thoughts come in. I can check what's going on. Nope, it's not me. What's, you know, and I'll, my spidey sense is going on. Now I know what's going on in the environment. And what was an attack now becomes intel from the kingdom of heaven because I'm using my equipment. Okay, I can start to deal with this. There were th some things going on in worship this morning. And I just zeroed in and we took care of it because it was in the environment. We need to use that spiritual equipment. And some of you, your biggest uh, vulnerability is your own sincerity with God. It's a good thing, but the fact is the enemy uses your sincerity against you because you don't, you're not really sure of who you are. I just prayed for a guy out in the park the other night. I made it to the worship time the other night. Just in time, I got there. I got to the park. I kept doing circles around the park. I could hear the music, but I couldn't find it. I told him I should have just followed my spirit, but I was afraid I'd end up at KFC. So uh, finally, I found it. I got there just in time. I got there, got up, and prayed the closing prayer. It bummed me out, but it was awesome. And uh, there was a young man there that I've met before, and he said, hey, would you pray for me? And as soon as I laid my hands on him, this is what the Lord told me to tell him. Tell him he is much 
more sincere than he realizes. His heart is more right with me than he realizes. It was that very thing. His own desire to be sincere makes him vulnerable because of his lack of uh, grasp of his own identity. And the enemy plays off of that and torments him. See, condemnation doesn't bother the insincere believer. They don't care. If, they're, if they think they're guilty, they don't mind. But the sincere believer wants to stay right. And if we don't know who we are, the, the enemy can use our own sincerity against us. And so there, is, there are spirits in the environment that we need to be aware of what we're dealing with. We need to be aware of the spiritual realm. There are also aids called angels that are sent to serve the heirs of salvation, Hebrews 1 says. In other words, these agents, these spiritual beings, were sent by God, assigned to you to help you move into all that God has set aside for you. Help you move into your destiny and move into your inheritance. And we need to learn to be aware of that and cooperate with that and pray for that and and, uh, engage that. There's things we can do. But so many of us just live in the natural realm. We need to be aware of the spiritual realm. So, real quick here. The, uh, in, in, uh, the, the Greek word for heavenly realms, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, l- let me just run through some verses and someday maybe we'll get a little deeper on this. Listen to the, the theme here. Genesis 1.1, first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, two realms simultaneously. Why? Because their destinies are intertwined. God never meant for them to function separately. We've talked about that before. That was the first verse of scripture. God introduces the, 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 the uh, canvas upon which all of this is going to play out, both the heavens and the earth. The heavens weren't made for God and the earth for man. The heavens were made for us. Solomon said the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain him. You and I are seated in heavenly places. The problem is we're very in touch with this realm that God has delegated to us, but we're very out of touch for the most part to the other realm that God has delegated to us. And we need to become attuned to that and aware of what's going on. God wants you, God has given you equipment, spiritual ears, spiritual eyes. Paul talked about developing your senses so that you know what's going on. So, if Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. They were created together because their destinies were intertwined. Ephesians 1-10. Now listen, go to the New Testament. And it talks about Jesus, God's purpose in Christ is to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Let me read that again. To unite all things in him, in Christ, Things in heaven and things on earth. God is reuniting the heavens and the earth together. And Christ is the intersection. He is the the joining place of both the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And when you and I get saved, we become participants of that. That we are to occupy both spaces. That's why it says that we are seated in heavenly places. He goes on. Here's another verse. Uses, what I'm doing is I'm reading a series of verses that speak of heavens and earth. Heavens and earth. Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. So Jesus' blood is reconciling not only things on earth, but things in the heavens. The blood of Christ shed on the cross has an effect of reconciling things in the spiritual realm to God. It's not just the souls of men, not just the wills of men, 
But literally, this, the heavens are being realigned with heaven through the blood of Christ. Matthew, Matthew 6, 33, that famous verse. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray this thing. He created it this way. Sin severed it. Jesus came to reunite it. By his blood, he's accomplishing it. And you and I have a part to play in praying that thing to come to pass. That heaven would invade earth. And there would be a... a uh, an agreement between heaven and earth. Then Jesus gave marching orders to his disciples at the end of his ministry. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It wasn't just all authority on earth. It was all authority in the heavens and on earth. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations. Why is this important? Why is it important that Jesus was given authority in the heavens and on earth? Because you and I march into what is occupied territory by these rogue rulers who through at Calvary were stripped of their authority according to Colossians chapter 2. I want to say it's verse 20. I'm not sure. He, they were stripped. Jesus made an open spectacle of them. He stripped them of their power. Now we, we've been talking, uh, we hit a couple weeks about uh, an understanding of the hierarchy in the heavens. Scripture is very clear. Uh, Psalm 82, verse 1. God takes his seat in the divine council among the gods. That's a troubling verse. Later on it says, he refers to them as the sons of God and he rebukes them and says, you are all gods but you will die like men. The context of Psalm 82 is that God delegated the nations according to Deuteronomy 32. Moses said that God divided the nations according to the sons of God. If you begin to do a study of the Old Testament, there is this class of spiritual created beings that are known as the sons of God. Together they are known as the divine council. They are also known as elders in heaven. They are referred to as watchers. And God delegated the earth to them. This happened in Genesis 11 at Babel. Where God dispersed the nations according to language and location. And then it says, but he reserved for himself the nation of Israel. When God dispersed the nations, the very next chapter, he introduces Abram. God is pushing a restart. And he's going he's to raise up a son on earth. And through that, win the nations of the earth. What was In chapter 11, we see him introduced. Chapter 12, he tells him, I will bless you and you will become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. The last verse of Psalm 82 says, all the nations will be his. What God is after is reclaiming the nations as his own. And so Psalm 82 is really a messianic psalm that is prophesying the judgment of what the New Testament refers to as principalities of powers, but the Old Testament refers to as this, these ruling spirits, these sons of God that will all die like men. What he, when he said in Psalm 82. So he judged them. So in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the fulfillment of Psalm 82. He's judging them. And we need to understand this because this begs the question. Where did these principalities and powers that are spoken of in Ephesians 6, 
That Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in heavenly realms. He's using that terminology. The Greek word there is eperonios. Let me, let me read this to you, a little word study. Eperonios, of the heavens as opposed to earthly, associated with multiple invisible realms. This ter- term, eperonios, is plural, comprised of two words, oranos, which is singular, meaning sky or heaven, and epi, a prefix meaning to superimpose. The meaning behind this phrase, translated heavenly places, therefore, is the superimposition of an unseen realm over the scene. It is different than the singular oranos, which refers to the dwelling of God, heaven, which we aspire to as our eternal home. It's referring to multiple dimensions of unseen reality, okay? And most likely, uh, there's, there's debate on this in theological circles. Uh, the Jewish, Jewish scholars have a teaching that there are seven realms of heaven. Paul alluded to the third heaven. And most Christian, Christian theologians believe there are three heavens. The first heaven being the one we can see. You know, that where the sky and the, you know, the clouds and the birds, butterflies, and it looks like a Disney movie. That, that's the first heaven. The second heaven is not a far off place. It's a dimension that's right here. The second heaven is the realm of angels and demons. And in fact, it is the realm in which we are said to be seated. And we need to understand this. Because there's a lot of teaching that goes around that I think is faulty because it doesn't understand the full picture here. So we have the first heaven, which is the physical heaven, the skies. The second heaven, which is the realm of angels and demons. It's that space between the earth and heaven that's occupied in the spiritual realm. It's, uh, it's amongst us. It's not a far off place. It's here. You are in the spirit right now in one sense. Some of you are in more sense than one. <laughs> and uh, we'll get into that later. And then the third heaven is the realm of God where God's throne is. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I know a man who, whether in, in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but this guy, and then he says it again, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And virtually every scholar believes that Paul is speaking of himself. And Paul, it was such a wild experience. Paul said, I'm not sure if that was in the body or out of the body. He says it twice. He said, but this man went to the third heaven. He saw it, whether it was a vision or it was he went there or it came here or whatever. I don't know what happened there. But I'm telling you, I saw things I can't talk about. He said, it's the third heaven. So when Paul talks about heavens, plural, he's alluding to the fact that there are multiple realms to this thing. It's not just some big open void up there, you know. And heaven is not just some, a cloud up there with a little castle, you know. Uh, and, and then there's little minor clouds, little angels, you know. That's not heaven. We need to understand this. This is solid biblical theology. So listen to this. Uh, the meaning behind this phrase, heavenly place, is therefore superimposition of the unseen realm over the scene. It is different than the singular aranos, which refers to the dwelling place of God, where eperanios refers to the the multiple heavens implied by Paul when referring to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. Jewish scholars actually taught there are more than, there are seven. Uh, Suffice it to say that the term used in Ephesians is referring to the multiple dimensions of the unseen realm as opposed to merely the dwelling place of God 
which we aspire to as our eternal abode. So, there are five times this term is used in the book of Ephesians, and it's actually one, if not the primary, theme of the book of Ephesians. That's why when you study this, this idea of the heavens, you need to understand Ephesians is the go-to book. And that's important for us to understand because the book starts with all this inheritance and this wonderful, you know, blessings and heavenly places and wealth, but it ends with warfare. And there's a reason for that. And if we don't fill out our theology, we'll either only have an idea, we only have the perspective of the Christian life is all warfare or the Christian life is all blessing. And I already have it. I don't need to fight for it. I'm already seated there. And either one is an aberration. It's, it's an error. And we need to understand the whole book gives us the whole picture. And it really very well may be the primary uh, thrust of Paul's purpose in writing this book. I'm convinced. After I've studied the book of Ephesians more than any other book in my life for 35 years, and I'm not so sure that's not the case. Okay. Uh, let me give you the five verses real quick here. We've, we've talked about some of these before, but I want to frame them within our, our present discussion. The first one, Ephesians 1, 3, it's the, the, the heavenly, the Eperanios is the place, the location of our inheritance. Praise be to the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the Eperanios, the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, it said, then it goes down to uh, verse 119b and 21. It's also the place of Jesus' dominion and enthronement. Okay, so he's given us all blessings there. And then it says this, that power, speaking of the power we've received, is the same as the mighty strength which God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the Eperonios, in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So what God did is had Jesus walk on the earth, march into hell, march back out of hell, up through the heavens and sit down at the highest place of authority in the universe so he could say, everywhere I put my foot is mine, I claim it all. And he's taken authority. And the Eperonios is the place of his dominion. So he seized control. God delegated this to the sons of God. Now, Jesus is the only unique son of God. The word we translate only begotten as in the Greek, monogenes. It would be better translated the only unique. He is unique in that he is uncreated. The other sons of God are created beings, but they are referred to as divine beings, but not in the sense of uncreated and you know, unlimited power. They were created and they were delegated by God. The nations were delegated to them. God rebukes them in, he, in Psalm 82, and then he puts another son on the earth. And through his life, he strips them of his power, of their power, and he sets his son in heavenly places. And that's a great story, but we need to understand there's also some other elements to it that aren't so pleasant. 
The next verse that we see this word eperonio show up is Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. And it tells us it's the place of our co-enthronement and regency. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in eperonios, heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to his kindness in us in Christ. He enthroned us as co-regents over these realms in heaven in the spirit. It must be noted, however, that this seated position, and this is very important, so please stay engaged. I don't want to bore you with this, okay? It must be noted, however, that this seated position is a legal appointment that must be exercised, not merely received. We can fail to occupy and exercise our authority all while celebrating what this verse says. We're celebrating it and declaring our seated position, but yet fail to really enter into it and exercise it. It's what I refer to as charismatic bravado. We're seated in heavenly places. Well, where is the good of that, my friend? Because we need to engage, and it is true. The legal deed of those places have been handed to you. But until you step your feet on that ground, displace the enemy that occupies your promised land, you can't really say that you are living in the good of that verse. You are seated, yes. It's talking a legal thing. Now listen to the Greek, the Greek term for seated is this. It's, this is from... Uh, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other Christian literature. Uh, by it's a, it's a, it's a well-known uh, reference. Listen, the, the Greek word seated, the, uh, it means to put in charge of something, to appoint, install, or authorize. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are fully occupying it. And the way most people talk about that, that, well, hey, we're seated in heavenly places. We're there. Yes, in a sense. It's legally yours. The deed has been given to you. It's like if I had some rental properties and I said, this morning I'm getting out of the rental business and I want to bless some people with some rental properties. And I give one to some, each of you. And then after you sign on the dotted line, oh, by the way, uh, you know, Hell's Angels uh, president and his cohorts live in those houses. Yeah. Good luck. You know? Now you've got to go and serve the eviction notice and displace them so that you can fully occupy what I have given you legally so you can live there with your babies actually. <laughs> and in between here and there is a battle. And you need to know the legal way to remove them. So, the theological error arises when we think we have it merely by judicial decree. Jesus has decreed it as ours, but now it is our responsibility to step into the good of that. The biblical model for this would be the book of Joshua. In chapter 1, the Lord tells Joshua, everywhere you place your foot is yours. But Joshua didn't retire at that moment, comforting himself with the reality of his spiritual inheritance. He didn't talk, wow, man, I got this, I got this land over there. It's awesome. He, the rest of the book, there's bloody battle after bloody battle where they fought tooth and nail to seize what had been given them. This is why it's often been said that the book of Ephesians is the New Testament example of the book of Joshua. Joshua didn't retire. 
Instead, he entered his promised land and fought for every square inch of his promise, removing the influence of the enemy. Another, another troubling yet necessary truth is this. The future generations, this is for another day, but just let me throw it out there. The future generations forfeited through toleration of the enemy and their gods what Joshua sees through warfare. So just because we occupy it now doesn't mean that's a permanent state. We need to contend. We need to fight for and govern well. And that is across the board. Your victories don't deter, are not in necessarily a prophecy of your future. Your ability to steward them well are. That's true psychologically. <laughs> that's true relationally. You may have had a breakthrough with your wife, sir. <laughs> you may have apologized and, man, she's smiling at you across the table at lunch today. And you're thinking, wow, it's transformed. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Can you steward this new situation or will you fall back and give up the ground you achieved? It's true on every, every you know, dimension of our lives. And we need to understand this. And my concern is that we study the Bible and we settle in as though things are ours because we, they're stated so, but those are title deeds and invitations. But that doesn't mean you're living in your inheritance. Just means you can if you'll fight for it. Because we have an, an enemy that occupies that place. Okay, so then there's, there's another one. Uh, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 10. The purpose of our enthronement, his intent that was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the Eperonios, in the heavenly realms. And then chapter 6, verse 12. Our activity in the, in the realm, battle, or the place of the rogue squatters, you could say. Uh, for our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the Eperonios, the heavenly realm. So here's one of the things that we need, those of you that have, are you know, somewhat versed in the charismatic, uh, modern charismatic theology and prophet, the prophetic movement and, and spiritual warfare and all this stuff, there's a lot of talk about we don't go into the second realm. We don't touch that. That's where the demons are. We just go straight to the third heaven. And I'm telling you on the authority of the word of God, that cannot be true because the Bible very clearly says you are seated there, that you have been given title deeds in that space and you need to displace the enemy that is camped out in your realms and exercising dominion over the blessings that are for you. Ephesians 1 says all spiritual blessings are given to us, but they are in, they reside in the Eperonios. And the same word is used, these principalities and powers that we wrestle with are in the Eperonios. And so people say, no, we don't engage principalities and powers. I'm not talking about cavalier and just slinging words. I'm talking about, uh, it's not so much, well, here, let me read you something. Let me read you one more thing here. Some would say we do not deal with principalities and powers, but Paul clearly taught otherwise. This is a quote from Paul. Against principalities in high places. How do we deal with these? These ruling spirits, spirits over regions by wrestling. Not a command, not a single declaration, but wrestling. And I personally believe this speaks of travail. You can't even get there without internal surrender. 
You will not care enough to be engaged at that level to ever even engage in that kind of battle unless you have surrendered. And I want to caution you, if there is resistance, because I have met a few people that do. I remember 25 years ago hearing Mike Bickle address this thought and 25 years later, sad to say I've seen it play out in a few people's lives. He talked about those who have issues in their life, areas in their life that are clearly contrary to the will of God. Sin in their life that they're not willing to repent of, yet they are fasting and praying and crying out for revelation and pursuing the, you know, the things of God, yet they have this unsurrendered area of their life. And Mike Bickle made this statement, and I, I still remember listening to that at the time, a cassette tape, and he said, those people, he said, ended up in such a... Uh, the, the word, the, the word the, a complexity of bondage, just a twisted mess of bondage, spiritual bondage, because they literally get into occultism. They're crying out for wisdom and revelation that are off limits to them because the f- wisdom of heaven, first of all, is pure, James says. And if you are not willing to repent of your sin, I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about saying, God, I've got this issue and I don't want this issue and I'm willing to do whatever I can to clean it up. Well, What I am talking about is those who say, I don't care. I'm not going to deal with this issue. I want to reserve this. I want this thing, but I want to fast. I'm going to join in fasting and prayer. I'm going to get in and worship and cry out for revelation. And they get into such a twisted mess. There is a demonic delusion that comes over those people. We've got to realize. And so most people, I made a blanket statement. I'm correcting myself. Most people don't even get involved at that level because they're just... Until you deal with the internal battle and internal surrender, you're not going to engage at that level, usually. But there are those who do, and they really get themselves in great danger. You need to be careful. Okay, I'm going to close in just a moment. Who will give me just five minutes? Just five minutes. Five, 10, 15. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I know, you guys, the pastor gets some new jokes. Okay. Uh, You can't even get there without surrender to him. You will not care enough to be engaged at that level. You will back off, acquiesce, and surrender the ground rather than get touched. When you love your life, you cannot prevail in travailing prayer. You cannot wrestle and therefore are no threat to the principality or power. Let me say it again. When you love your life, you cannot prevail in travailing prayer. You will acquiesce and surrender the ground rather than get touched. This is why the context of Ephesians 6, when it says, and, and stand, and when you've done all, stand. It is talking about the fiery trial. When you've gotten in the pocket and come hell or high water, you are not getting off that thing until we see something break. And I'm telling you, that's where God needs to get us as a church and as a people right now in this hour. This is what it's going to take. The hinge of history will swing on those people. And so God is looking for those people that will will get to that place where they will exchange their life in intercession. And so then he says, or then he says, I wrote this, okay. Then I said, (laughs) this is not scripture. I stand by it, but it's not the Bible, okay. But oh, the man or woman who has surrendered, who who has been consumed with the cause of the kingdom and loves not their life unto death. Heaven or hell fears that one. When God has established a house of heroes, those who refuse to retreat 
who are more concerned with satisfying the thirst of their king than their own preservation, hell trembles. Heaven is released and the enemy is routed. God sets up his throne and reigns from the midst of that type of church. Let me read this. I, I wrote this in April 26th of 2012, two days before my, I think, 47th birthday. It's the intercessor's vow. I will lay down my life in order to see his kingdom come, his will being done in my region and in my generation. I am a plank in the bridge. I will take my place that King Jesus may march in across my laid down life and invade my world. I have not only laid down my will, I have picked up his. Our wills have become one so that I can stubbornly pursue with my whole self what is in our shared heart. I fast in order to focus. I disrupt the ordinary so that my heart remains fixed on another world. I am a soldier on tour of duty. My leave will come when I leave this world. Until then, I will fight for ground. My joy is co-laboring with him in kingdom breakthrough. I pray for effectiveness. I expect answers because he promised it. But my greatest joy is the intimacy I've found with him and co-laboring with him. He is my great reward. You see, when we're talking about this level of intercession, what God is trying to get us to is that, that thing that will say, Lord, come hell or high water. And when the enemy sees someone like that, yes, there is attacks. But if you've already fought the internal battle, you have already resolved that issue. And the reason most people don't get there is because when the enemy touches them, they're touchy and they back off. But if the Lord can find someone that will stand their ground and say, God, I don't know why this is happening and I don't understand it and I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to be offended. I'm going to stand my ground. But Lord, I'm asking you to invade this situation. When heaven finds someone like that, I'm telling you, they are the conduit through which God can invade earth. And hell has nothing in them. That's what Jesus was talking about on the eve of his crucifixion. He stood there and he said, this is the hour where darkness reigns. It's in the book of John. It's an amazing statement. Jesus wasn't just talking words. He was sending a message to darkness. He said, this is the hour in which darkness reigns. But he has nothing in me. I believe hell literally shook when he said that because they knew it was true. And yet they were able to get their jaws on him and swallow him and thought, we have the victory. And on the third day, hell got indigestion. <laughs> he had nothing in him, but he still had to suffer because that's what an intercessor does. It gets under the load and says, I'm willing to pay the price for those who can't for themselves. Just real quick here, I'm, I'm going to close. Jesus, this is why Jesus' temptation was so crucial prior to ministry. He faced it again in the garden. Once in the wilderness, again in the garden, it is the battle of wills. In the wilderness, the battle was doubt about himself. In the garden, it was doubt about the Father. And the necessity or the nature, the necessity of the sacrifice, you could say the nature of ministry. That's what he was wrestling with. I don't know about you, but when I fast, I always have these thoughts. This is so stupid. What difference is it going to make if I eat a steak or not? Krispy Kreme is calling me. 
And I'm thinking, seriously, I, I go through these mental torments. I'm thinking, what difference does it make? Really? Is this really going to matter in eternity? Are souls really in the balances over the bite of a Krispy Kreme? And at the moment when I'm being tormented by that, the fact is the resounding answer is yes. But it's hard for me to see it right then. That's the battle. In the beginning of his ministry, the battle was over his own identity. If you're really a son, I'm telling you, how much you know who you are will determine how well protected you are from the enemy. And Jesus passed the test. He went in full, but he came out in the power because he knew who he was. But then he faced it again in the garden. And this time it was that wrestling with the Father. And God, is there any other way? That's what was behind that cry. Father, is this really necessary? He knew what he was stepping into, but he was wrestling back and forth and saying, but Lord, not my will, but thine will be done. Until finally they were locked and loaded, and it's our will. And their shared will, it's a, that, the pre, that, 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 that picture before Calvary of Abram and, and, the, and Isaac going up the mountain. It's such a beautiful uh, premonition of Calvary where it says that the father carried the fire and the knife and the son carried the wood. And he would be the sacrifice. He was carrying the wood. And the father carries the fire of his wrath and the knife of death. And they come up together up the mountain in perfect union. It's, God didn't do it to the son against his will. And the son didn't have to talk the father into it. There was a, a, uni, a unity. It says nobody took his life. Okay, I'm going to land it. We are... Until we love not our life unto the death, we are not unhinged from self. We are not unhinged from self until we sacrifice. Intentions don't accomplish this. It is the actic self that severs the cord. Theoretical Christianity that is lived out through abstract decisions made in services but void of follow-through are a dangerous fraud. Let me say it again. Theoretical Christianity that is lived out through abstract decisions made in an altar, but void of follow-through, are a dangerous fraud. This type of charade may console the conscience, but it makes absolutely no impact in the natural world. This is why Jesus' temptation was crucial, because he was facing his own will, and he had to bend in submission to the Father. Temptation and sacrifice are always essential before fresh breakthrough. Increased authority and the launching into a new assignment. Prayer is a mixture of both faith based upon... Our... Here's the deal. I believe we have just entered into a new season. The Rosh Hashanah, the, the Jewish New Year. That is not a coincidence. I have been feeling this. I don't stay in touch with the Jewish calendar. I probably should, but I don't. But I've been sensing this shifting of the seasons, and we have entered into a new season. I was on, the, on a phone with Bob Hoover yesterday praying. Bob was one of our elders for a number of years, now he's out in West Virginia. And Bob, I told him, the Lord's been speaking to me about this. He said, Pastor, he said, same thing. He said, the Lord's, I've been asking the Lord, what is this? It's a new season. He said, the Lord told him it's a season of war. And I believe that's what it is. We need to sign up and put our names on the dotted line. The future generations will look back at this moment in human history, in America's history, 
And they'll look at us as the heroes that saved a nation or the failures that gave it away. It really comes down to that. And that the battle is, yes, we need to get into the, the voters box and you need to vote. We'll be talking about that in the future. But your greatest vote is for the throne of heaven in the place of prayer. But it's more than just pulling a lever. It's your will being engaged. Let's, let's stand. I really do apologize for keeping you so late. But I feel like we, we really need to engage this. I'm going to ask you just to put your hands up before the Lord right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, God, stir our hearts. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. God, Lord, we thank you. I just saw this picture. It's like the, the army of heaven in the sky surrounding, just waiting to invade. But they wait the invitation of those to whom the earth has been delegated. Lord, I ask that you would stir our hearts. Lord, go deep with the plow blade of your word. Turn over the fallow ground, the unproductive areas of our heart, Lord. Provoke us to action. Lord, we're, Lord as the, the delegated authority over this house, Lord, I'm asking God that you take us Spend us well. Take us, Lord. Use us. Oh, God. And Father, I'm asking that you do whatever you have to in us so that you can move through us. Lord, align our will with your will. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.